So this, uh, this session is an, an extended answer to my brother's question, <laughs> in a way, how do we help disembodied people uh, develop embodied practices as, as a way of responding? Why don't we turn to um, 1 Corinthians, book of 1 Corinthians, uh, if you've got your Bible, I know you probably feel reassured to be asked to open your Bible. I expect somebody going, man, are we just going to do a whole day of teaching and no Bible? Um, so 1 Corinthians, we're going to be in chapters, a little bit in chapter 11, a little bit in chapter 14. Um, and I want to talk about what I call eucharismatic worship, uh, which is a made-up word, but uh, because obviously theologians do that, don't they? You make up a word and hope that people will see that the word sticks. And other than that, it's just a bit of fun, really. But I, it's trying to capture something that I think is really valuable for us, and I, I'm pursuing it myself. Um, I want to sort of sketch it for you. Some of you may have come across what I mean by it before, whether or not you have the word. The idea is a sort of fusion of Eucharistic and charismatic worship, or what, you know, the book title is Spirit and Sacrament, but the idea that really to be charismatic in worship and to be Eucharistic and liturgical in worship are not enemies, but ways, uh, actually mutually reinforcing ways of experiencing of a full depth of how we can worship God together and be formed as we do. And I find that when I tell people, at least in Britain, when I'm a Christian pastor, people imagine, I don't know what people, in, in your country probably people are more aware of what church actually looks like than they are in mine. Because in my country, most people's experience of church is either at a, a life event, like a funeral or a baptism or a wedding, which doesn't tell you much about ordinary church life, or it's on TV. But they probably haven't, many of them have never been to a church at all like mine or at all like this. So when I say I'm a pastor, and, and it, some, some of them don't even know what a pastor is, but if I say I'm a Christian leader or a Christian, like I'm like a vicar, um, and people, what they imagine is often one of two extreme things. So some people think of, um, have you seen Mr. Bean? When Mr. Bean goes to church and he's trying, with Richard Briers is next to him and he's trying to sing the song and it's like, hallelujah, hallelujah, that scene. So some people imagine that, or they imagine it's Vicar of Dibley, it's the, the kind of the old, like the cathedral, the other, the, the Westminster Abbey the other week with the coronation. They're imagining that. And that's probably what most people in my country think. In, in that sort of tradition, there is a very, very high emphasis on liturgy to the point that nothing gets said or done that people haven't planned out to the to the second. So the, the coronation the other day, every single bit of that service is rehearsed, is planned, it's scripted, you know exactly what will happen. And that's the power. You couldn't crown King Charles in a church like ours. You know, somebody, Kevin goes up and goes, do you know what I really think we should do? I think we should pray for Charlie. Uh, let's put him over here and we all get around him. And obviously it's not suitable for that kind of, kind of, it's great for this, but it doesn't work for that. But actually it's, it's, it's got a lot of strength to it. A lot of that liturgy is incredibly powerful. It's beautiful and deep, but that's one thing they imagine. The other thing they imagine is a Pentecostal celebration. And probably if they think of white people going to church, they think of this. If they think of black people going to church, they think of this. But that's the, they will think of people going, I have seen the light and cartwheeling down the central aisle like James Brown and the Blues Brothers. And they, will, they might imagine that. There's choirs all singing and swaying and waving. And obviously I tell them, well, my church is more like this. It's not, not quite like that, but it's a lot more like that than it is like that. Um, but those two extremes of a sort of very Pentecostal wanting the spirit to come and do something now and zap people and having a very deep, rich, heritage-fueled liturgy which expresses deep truths in beautiful, sonorous ways and enables us to experience them and all built around a sacrament. Those two extremes, actually, I think I want to bring them together. I want to see the best of both of those things in the life of the ordinary church today. And obviously, 
comedy skits like Mr. Bean or James Brown don't give us an accurate picture of Christian worship at all. But there is some truth to both of those cartoons, which is that some churches, there's a lot of depth, but there's not very much bounce. It's, it's like it sort of it goes down into the roots of the church's tradition and of the value of well-written and well-pronounced and well-performed choral pieces and prayers. But it, it doesn't look, it's, it doesn't, people don't look, you wouldn't, if you were to describe the emotions of the people in the service, you wouldn't say things like, probably joy unspeakable and filled with glory. And that's not to say that none of them are, but that's not what strikes you in, in a setting like that. And I've been in lots of them. And I've been members of churches like that. Um, uh, a guy, it's a British uh, evangelist who I heard tell the story, but he said he grew up in Cyprus. And um, he said, I, just, I left church one week where, where I'd always been brought up going to church, but I went in to church that day. I was about 12 years old, I think, if my memory serves. And he, he goes into the, goes in the church and there is a guy with a big beard and a big hat at the front saying, my heart is full and my cup overfloweth. And I just didn't believe him, <laughs> um, which I just thought was a really, a really nice way of saying it. Like, as in, you can, you can hear that. So the words are great, but it doesn't look like it actually. Meanwhile, there's lots of churches where there's a lot of bounce and not very much depth. There's a lot of sort of waving and shouting and, you know, dancing and expectation of breakthrough and celebration. And there's actually might be a lot of spiritual power of healing and, you know, languages and prophecy and all that sort of stuff. But it can be a mile wide and an inch deep. It, it can be that it's... You think in, when things are going well, that works really well, and it's very difficult to sustain when things go badly, and it's very difficult to sustain when everybody gets COVID and the church disappears for a year. Like, well, where are the practices that carry you through when you're not? Well, it can be a bit sugary, is a word I sometimes use. You know, when people those fantastic little sour sweets out there, which you, you just have a few too many of those, and your heart's <laughs> and we've all been in church meetings that are just quite sugary. Everyone's very excitable, but you think, well, hang on. If there was no fruit on the vine and no cattle in the stalls, would you still be praising? Do you have that Habakkuk resilience in there? And, and not to say that none of the churches like that do, and none of the people who, you know, my parents go to a church like this, and they're filled with joy in Christ. And a lot of people go to a church like this, who, including many of us, who've walked through very dark seasons and clung to God. But I think we can also see that there are strengths that each of them have that the other one doesn't. Um, because they all focus on some of God's gifts to the exclusion of others. So over here, the gifts of God that are celebrated, gifts of bread and wine and water and oil, which are things God gave to the church to say, be strengthened with these. And they're really big on them, and some of the churches over here aren't quite sure what to do with them. Meanwhile, there's churches over here going, we've got other gifts that God has given to the church, prophecy, languages, healing, whatever. And churches over here are saying, we just don't really know what to do with those. And my conviction is you can pursue both. Um, so 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I'm just going to read a few little, I was going to say edited highlights, that sounds terrible with scripture, doesn't it? Um, a, a few different passages of 1 Corinthians 11 and 14. And I want you to look for the phrase, when you come together, as we read it, okay? So 1 Corinthians 11, starting at verse 17. But in the following instructions, I don't commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? 
Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I won't. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Verse 33. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things I will give directions when I come. Did anyone count it how often when you come together appeared in that chapter? Five. Who, was, who said that? That's impressive. Why were you counting? I don't look out for it. I didn't think anyone was going to keep counting. This is brilliant. Okay, five. Now, we're going to keep going. Chapter 14, verse 23. So three chapters later, a lot's happened. Basically, here's what spiritual gifts are, and here's why you should pursue them with love. And then chapter 14, verse 23. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say you're out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all, he's called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what's said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. You can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. This is the word of God. Which is now a total of seven, if you're keeping count, references to when you come together that phrase, or when the whole church comes together. Most of the New Testament isn't about corporate worship. It's not about what happens in meetings. Those of us who plan Sunday meetings kind of wish there was more, but much of it isn't. Much of it's about mission and serving the poor and going to the nations and all of that. It's mostly about what Jesus said and did, how the church spread, and how the good news of Jesus and the Holy Spirit transform our lives. But in 1 Corinthians, and particularly these chapters, 11 to 14, we get a fascinating window and quite a detailed window onto what corporate worship looked like in the early church. And as I said, that phrase, when you come together, appears seven times. Five of them relate to the Lord's Supper, communion, the sharing of bread and wine, the Eucharist, breaking bread. Quick straw poll. How many people in your church is the main language you use for that thing we do? How many would call it breaking bread in your church? That's the main term they use. How many would call it communion? Most. How many call it Eucharist? How many call it the Lord's Supper? How many call it the Mass? Probably none. I would be surprised, but you know, Luther did, as I said yesterday. It was kind of surprising. Okay. Um, so mostly communion with a bit of Lord's Supper and the odd breaking bread. Okay. So five of the references refer, when you come together, that's happening. The other two relate to spiritual gifts, a hymn, a teaching, a prophecy, a language, an interpretation. And as we know, in chapter 12, many others as well. And obviously, if you look around the church, by and large, you would probably conclude that somewhere there was a trade-off to be made, that you need that you either pursue this or you can pursue that. And 
my conviction is in the church in Corinth, at least, which is the only church we know anything like this much about the worship form, the form of worship in the church, that choice doesn't, ex- doesn't seem to exist. When you come together, you're doing this and you're doing this. You've got people kicking off in all these spiritual gifts. You've got everyone gathering around a table. And those are the, in fact, those, as far as we know, those are really the two things that happen. It doesn't even say when you come together, here's how you get the band. Remember, by the way, I love the band, particularly this band. I'd like to steal this band. Um, but uh, it, it doesn't actually talk about even singing in this letter. I mean, it, it, we obviously get that in other letters, but singing is quite a small part of what, what we're taught about corporate worship. It doesn't talk about preaching. So what we did this around the fire pit, I think, oh, no, maybe it was on the ACPC, wasn't it? The other, yesterday, we're asking questions about how, your, how does your liturgy work? How does the form of worship in your church work? And I think the general gist was most of our churches are nearly half is singing with other bits in there, nearly half is preaching, and then there's some notices in the middle and the odd bits and pieces elsewhere. But roughly, I mean, mo- by far the vast majority of the meeting was comprised of singing or preaching, and neither of them are actually mentioned in this setting, you could probably, in the word, a, a teaching, a lesson, say maybe that's more like a sermon, possibly. But it's not clear that it is. Um, and the other bits are not in there. Now, I'm not saying we therefore redo your liturgy. It's got to be half communion, half free-for-all spiritual gifts, no sermons, no band. Of course, I'm not saying that. It's just interesting, though, that when Paul describes their corporate worship, and of course, he's uh, describing the bits he's correcting, so it might be that the band are doing great. So there's no need to talk about the band, right? And, that, and that's, you, we've got to, you can't be silly, can't you? know, we've got to say, well, oh, do you know, Paul always talks about this. He doesn't. He just talks about it here because it's going badly. But nevertheless, I think there is something to glean from the fact that those are the two practices we know happened in this church in the longest section by far on how worship is actually structured. But you might think that in the church today, you have to choose between the two. But in Corinth, you clearly have what I call eucharismatic worship. Very spirit-filled, sometimes quite unexpected and a little chaotic worship, coupled with worship that's gathered around a table that involves a strong focus on the death and resurrection of Christ and sharing communion together. Um, so you can combine bread and wine with prophecy and languages, healing and oil, baptism in water and baptism in the spirit. You can, you can hold those things together. And that's what I mean by the word you charismatic. Let's um let's put up Winnie the Pooh. I just quite like these these memes. Um, so charismatic is like yeah, you charismatic is like yeah. Uh, Eucharistic and then you charismatic is I've now got the top hat and the monocle. I just think that's really cool. But it, it's really a way of saying here's two quite cool things that you can bring together, and take or leave the word. I don't care about the word. I what I do think the reality is worth pursuing. And so when when you come together, Paul says. Your gatherings will be structured both around serious reflection on the death of Christ for our sins and joyful celebration of the work of the Spirit in our lives. And I know that that's, I I trust we're probably convinced of that to a degree. But historically, the church has generally pushed one or other of those gifts out of the picture. And there are some churches, of course, in your community and mine, in which neither of them play a dominant role. Because the, the whole meeting is organized often around the preaching of the Bible. And so you might not have the sacraments almost feel too mysterious and, you know, uh, oldie worldy. Does that translate? You know, it's, I get probably not, but you know what I mean. 
Well, I did see a, a shop, I went past a shop the other day that had the word shoppy, spelled S-H-O-P-P-E, as if it was a thousand years old. I thought, that building was built in about 1991. Like, there's no way that's a shoppy. Anyway, um, but some people go, the sacraments are really, uh, they're kind of old and, and, and Catholic, right? Uh, There'll be Bible church. They would do it, but they would be very nervous of anything that looked too Catholic, simultaneously anything that looked too wacky, charismatic, and you might end up with the worst of both worlds. But if you read 1 Corinthians as a whole, you find it is in no way is it just those two elements. In fact, these are all of the following pages now are references taken from one and two, one, in fact, I think 1 Corinthians alone, right? So these are all the different kinds of elements of worship we find. Let's just, shall we bang through them, okay? So there is a weekly financial offering, chapter 16, we know. So those of you who are going, that's the bit of the liturgy that pays my salary. So that's the bit we mean to make sure we remember. That's in there, right? 1 Corinthians 16, 1 to 4. A reference to the church calendar. I don't know. Any, and it's a, it's a quick straw poll. How many people here celebrate any day in the church calendar other than Christmas, Good Friday, and Easter? So you do, you make something of, say, Advent, Pentecost, Trinity Sunday. How many churches do that here? So it's looking like nearly half. How many people would say, to be honest, Christmas, Easter, and other than that, we don't do the church calendar? How many, how many are there? Josh is brave enough to say yes. So what are all the rest of you doing? Like you're neither of those things. I, have, I must have framed this very badly. Are there any who say, we don't even do Christmas and Easter? Maybe that's what they're sitting there thinking. Because te- really, people who are, there are, in theory, that's actually a very consistent position. Is to go, no, we don't. We, we, we preach the same no matter what week it is. But what, in my experience, what a lot of churches do is they say, we have the church calendar for the two festivals that the whole nation understands. And other than that, the church calendar can go hang. We don't do Advent, we don't do Lent, we don't do I'm not saying you need to observe it all, but it's just interesting that Paul talks that way. and says, I'm, I'm going to come to you. I think you, uh, the exact phrase escapes me. I'm either going to come to you just after Pentecost or I'm going to leave just after Pentecost in chapter 16. We've also, so that's the second thing. The next thing, we've got the closest thing the New Testament ever has to a creed. Um, in fact, we have two, really, because in chapter 8 and verse 6, we have, although there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, through whom all things exist, and one Lord. It is very creedal in its form. And then, of course, chapter 15, verses 3 to 8, which would be very well known. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He rose on the third day. He appeared to all these witnesses. And last of all, he appeared to me. It's very creedal in its shape. It is. It's the first time someone says, this is a form of words that was handed on to me, and I'm now handing it on to you. So it doesn't use the word a creed, but that is the gist. This is the heart of the Christian confession, and I'm making this form of words was given to me, and I'm giving it to you. It's very, very early in the history of the church. We have reference to baptism in water in chapter 1, and baptism in the Spirit in in chapter 12. So we talk a bit about who's baptizing who in chapter 1. And that we were all baptized in one spirit into one body, chapter 12. We have the greetings from God in chapter 1 and greetings from one another in chapter 16. So the meeting, the, the letter starts with a welcome from God and it finishes with a greeting to each other. We have prayer, obviously, in chapter 1. We have ethical teaching and quite a lot of it um, in chapters 5 to 10 because there's a massive tangle of, of, on all sorts of issues, particularly sex and idolatry, which are pretty big problems if you're dealing with a Christian church. We have preaching of the cross in chapter 1 and of the resurrection in chapter 15. We have a a lengthy exhortation based on an Old Testament scripture in chapter 10. 
We have various liturgical sayings. I think within chapter 15, we get these, again, forms of words which seem to be sort of snippets of, and Paul does this a lot. He will take a, he'll announce something, but the way he writes it makes most interpreters now think that seems like a quotation from maybe, maybe it's an early Christian song, but, but it's clearly a form of words that's used. Where, O oh, death is your victory. And that, those sorts of sayings. And also, as I've said, that, that little early creed. There's numerous quotations from the Old Testament and one from the Gospels in chapter 7. And then at the end, there is an anathema. That is one element of corporate worship that I probably think you have to be very careful applying, as in we are now all going to gather together and say, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let them be accursed. But that's what Paul does. So it is a very formal denouncement of something. There is a maranatha, as in an our Lord come, which again, early, the early church would, would use, and they'd often say it in Aramaic, and a benediction, a blessing. That's a lot of liturgical elements in one letter, I think. And given that most of the letter isn't really an attempt to, you know, some of it is, but most of the letter's not about saying, here's all the things you should have in a worship time. But there is just a very wide range of different sorts of things that people would do in a worship time taking place in this one letter. And as I say, singing, which is one of my favorite bits of Christian liturgy, is not specifically mentioned in this setting. Now, don't worry, the longest book in the Bible, it's not actually the longest, but the one with the most chapters in its book in the Bible um, is absolutely full of songs. So we're fine. Singing will stay. Um, we can keep the singing and Becky still has a job and so on. But, um, but actually, that's not the, the focus here, but many, many other elements are. And so we might, in today in the church, we might separate out, oh, these bits belong in the kind of Mr. Bean church, these bits belong in the James Brown church, but in, in Corinth, we've got them both running through and apparently without any sense of confusion that they both exist. Now that, as it happens, I mean, I, my life has reflected some of that swing. So I think JD said when he introduced me this morning that I've kind of grown up in New Frontiers, which is true. I, I've been in a New Frontiers church since I was a young teen, but I also went to, as my parents got converted at a, a very conservative reformed evangelical church. Some of you might know the name Dick Lucas, I don't know, or so St. Helens Bishopsgate. So that was the church. My, my dad got converted in Dick Lucas's flat the week before he got married. Um, and then my mum independently got converted as well in the 10 days before they got married. So my parents both came to faith and then got married. And were like, wow, so this is, what's happened to you? Um, so that was quite an interesting, and that's the, effectively the first grace to me in my life. Um, but my, so my dad comes to faith in Dick Lucas's flat. He's, he's my godfather, has been praying for him and has used my dad as a test case um, Lord, you know, he speaks like this, my godfather, is called Charles Marnham. Um, he's a wonderful man. His wife named the Alpha Course. Just a little fact. It's a very Anglican, very sort of old England, um, just talk with this lovely, rich, sonorous English voice. And my dad said, uh, and Charles was saying, if, if my friend, as in my if Charles's friend, my dad, becomes a believer, I will take that as a sign that I'm supposed to go into ministry. And if he doesn't, I won't. And he literally retired as a vicar last year, so 45 years later or something. Um, very Anglican. And my dad has this spiritual experience and goes around to Dick Lucas's flat and tells him the story about how he's, well, look at what God's done. Now, someone said that to me on Sunday. Uh, I got to see this guy. He's like in the first half hour of his Christian life. He's going, they're saying, he's just become a Christian. Now, what I did was, this is wonderful. Oh, that's great. You get very excited about the experience. My dad tells that story to Dick Lucas, great sort of old reformed preacher. And Dick Lucas lets my dad finish with his testimony and goes, that's wonderful, Mr. Wilson, which 
Isn't that amazing? You used to call people Mr. Wilson even when they're 20 and you're six or whatever. That's wonderful, Mr. Wilson. But the question is not so much what do you feel, it's what does the Bible say? Which I thought was amazing. Like, this is 1974. So I'm thinking, that's the kind of church that my parents got saved into. I was christened in it, baptized, I guess they would have called it. Um, and that was where, yeah, that's my, the beginning. Then my parents swung from that into crazy charismatic commune that they still describe as like the closest to revival they've ever seen. As in you're having a meeting on the site and then when people come on the church grounds, big country house in the middle of nowhere, um, but it's basically that people move in, they buy all the houses in the village and they set up a commune. People would walk onto the grounds of the building and the grounds were like full under conviction of sin on the, on the land. They go, I don't know what's happening to me. And they just start crying about their sin. And I mean, you know, grew up young for early memories of everyone living in our house, dropping off food, taking, it was just one of those kind of, so I, my, by the age of five, I'd experienced Mr. Bean and James Brown with bells on like this. And so it's formed me quite a lot. And then I've also been a New Frontiers church, but went to Anglican uh, boarding school and effectively come, grown to see beautiful elements of both of those things throughout my Christian life, which I'm grateful for. Not is not everyone's story. And some people have seen it done very badly in both. And I think I have. I've, I've been in some very, very silly charismatic meetings. And I've sat through some Anglican services where the sacraments are happening but the, the, I know for a fact that not only doesn't the person who's preaching believe the passage, he doesn't actually believe in God at all and is still preaching about it. And he's preaching all religions lead to God in a church. And as Rachel said to me once about in another church service we were in, she's like, I was actually sitting here thinking, I wonder if someone's going to get struck down in this meeting because it just feels so, but you might've been in a church like that. We're like, the liturgy is so good, but this is such a pantomime that I, I'm actually worried for people's safety. Because that does happen in the Old Testament sometimes, and people are just taken out dead. So I've, been, I've seen that too. But I have therefore lived through, they're sort of very charismatic and very Eucharistic, and they've really, really shaped our lives. I, as a prophetic ministry is, well, yeah, it's why, you know, I was in a, in a meeting 20 years ago. I'm very new to church ministry. I just started working as a sort of junior pastor in a church running a, the Gap Year program. And there's a prophetic guy in our movement. He's from South Africa. Some of you know Julian Adams, maybe. Um, he's a South African guy. And he, but he was there, and he's just calling people out. And he calls out this one pastor and says, time has come. There's a Macedonian calling in your life. You need to move. And he's still, as a result of that decision, I sort of spoke to him a lot, uh, two weeks ago. He's still in the place where that prophetic word sent him 20 years on. And then he goes to another guy in a room full of pastors and says, you've been disappointed in your romantic life. Now, that's a risky prophetic word this year, right? And the guy burst into tears because he was engaged to be married and it all fell apart. And that's someone. Now that's, a, that's high risk, high accuracy prophetic ministry. And then he turns to me, I'm like, okay, what's this going to be? Am I moving or am I just going to, my marriage going to fall apart? What is it? And he just says, I can see manuscripts over your life. I think God is going to, is giving you a heart to write a book and an editor is going to approach you. And God says you're to write the book that is in your heart to write. Now that morning, I had had time before getting to this meeting to simply open my inbox. And it is the only time at that time in my life ever that this had happened. But I had literally sent a, a possible manuscript off to an editor about a three, three or four days before. And I got an email from my editor that morning going, we would like to publish this book. It became the first book of mine that was published. We'd like to publish this book. And I'd literally read the email. I was still kind of excited about it, but hadn't really done anything. You know, you just you go, oh, that's great. And then you shut the laptop and you go off to this meeting where a guy says, and I just thought, 
I have, so I've seen that kind of thing happen, and it's really been formative in my life. And that's really what I do now. And I've, there's many other examples. If I had more time, I would tell you a very funny story about our, how our third child got prophesied into existence. But um, maybe we might do that. Might, might do that. <laughs> Alan's are saying, do it, do it, do it. Okay. You don't, you don't want me to tell the story. <laughs> you don't want me to tell the story. 100% no. Okay. This will be... <laughs> I think when faced with, you know, when faced with submission to the leadership of the meeting or your wife, I just, it's only going to be one winner at this point, I'm afraid. So, so yeah, we'll tell you guys later. Um, but it is, it's a fun story. But anyway, we now have a child called Samuel as a result. Can I, do, I could do the sanitized version without the comedy bits. The sanitized version without the, the powerful bit without the comedy bits is that we were, the Rachel was, we had a women's conference about to happen. We're having a church-wide prayer meeting. And they never normally do this in the church we were in. Um, but they said, well, actually, we're going to ask the women, we asked the men all to pray for the women. So guys, can you find, you know, find a woman who's going to the conference and then just, just pray and just pray as God leads you. And these two guys, I wasn't there, but these two guys are then praying for Rachel. And we have been thinking and asking God about whether or not, because of our older two kids had disabilities, that we were thinking is, are we going to be able to do this or not? Is this something that we should do? Or is this just silly? Because we had written off the chance of having more kids. But just thought, maybe this is something, I don't know. And, uh, but we had begun to discuss it. And I think you hadn't told, in fact, you might not even have told me. I'm not sure that you were beginning to think that this is something to do. But we hadn't told anybody, for sure. These guys come over and, uh, this, and this guy says, well, God just wants to say to you that he has heard your Hannah's prayer and that God is going to confirm it to you at this women's conference with the words of two or three witnesses. Um, and there are other things that came in as well, including the comedy bit, which I'll tell people later and, or not. Um, and, but he said he's heard your Hannah's prayer and he's going to confirm it with the word of two or three witnesses at this conference. So Rachel goes away and goes, wow, that's amazing. Hannah's prayer, praying for a baby. That's, that's exactly what I've been doing. Wow, let's see. But then she goes to the women's conference and she's talking to her sister and says, the thing is, if we were to do this and have another child, I just don't know how it would work because our older two have so much need really that it would, it's as if we would need a third person to come and live, a third adult to live in our house as well as have three kids because I just don't think we could do it otherwise which much of the last few years, by the way, that is how we've done things, including right now. Um, but we weren't, just weren't sure that could happen. And then another friend of hers comes up the next morning at the conference and says, I don't know what this means, but um, God just, I feel like God gave me, was it a dream or a vision? A picture. God gave me a picture for you, which is that I just had this picture of you having three adult-sized seats and three child-sized seats around your kitchen table. I don't really know why, but anyway, I just thought I'd leave it with you, and that's that. I just like, so we just conclude by a Hannah's prayer in which God, you're literally saying, I think we'd have to have three and three. And then God comes up and says, that's it. And I'm confirming to you the word. So I, and obviously now, you know, so we called him Samuel because it's, God's heard the Hannah's, Hannah's prayer and he's fantastic. He's now seven. Now, so think prophetic ministry like that has shaped our lives in a big way. And, and I feel very blessed that it has. And many of us have got stories of that nature. Mine aren't that special. You know, some, I've been in my office when someone says, there's a demon manifesting down the corridor. Could you come and help? So it's like, okay, you just walk down the corridor and, you know, in the name of Jesus, all this stuff. Um, and, but yet at the same time, obviously a very strong theology of and increasingly in my life anyway, practice of baptism, communion, the creeds. I mean, the, the creeds just so helpful, particularly when the church is looking for roots in a post-Christian world, actually, that leaning into the history of the church really helps us. It, it's not, it's not robust to go, well, this is our version of Christianity. We, we don't do our, all that ancient stuff. 
the more post-Christian the culture becomes, the, the stronger, the, the more validating it is to have deep historic roots, I've found. Um, catechisms, I, I quote the Heidelberg Catechism all the time, found it so helpful. Liturgy, just this last couple of weeks, preaching Hosea and finding that without a prayer of confession and absolution leading to communion, people don't know what to do with their sin when you preach the prophets. They know what to do if you're preaching John or Ephesians. It's lovely. Charismatics, we all hear that and we all go, that's wonderful, on our way rejoicing. But when you have a message that is non-stop, you are a sinner, you are an idolater, you must repent, judgment is coming. What do you do practically if you don't, you can't then really finish with, here I am to worship. You kind of got to have something a bit more, what am I going to do with my sin? And finding that literally the Book of Common Prayer has really helped us just going, that prayer that we all say together, followed by me and pronouncing absolution over the church, like saying, you are forgiven because the word says you are and using a form of words for that. Now come to the table and celebrate is been really helpful in our, in, my, in our ministry. So I've seen how they both work and benefited from both, but I've also seen how they can reinforce each other. So it's not a tug of war with the Eucharistic people going this way and the charismatic people going this way. I know that you don't, that's not quite how tug of wars generally, uh, a little bit, uh, slightly exaggerated form. But it's, it's not like a tug of war, it's more like a tree. It's more like the deeper you go, the higher you go. It's like the roots go further, and as a result, you can expand more. The, the sort of height and stepping up into the lights, the hand-raising even, if you like, is grounded in depth, which means that there is, uh, to be honest, exactly as we had that song, Yet Not I, But Christ in Me, is you go, I was just, yeah, I was properly shaking in tears over here. Just thinking, because that is, in a way, it is just, it is the best of a devotional, charismatic mood worship song, but it, it's grounded in the most, some of the most deep, beautifully written form of words that we have. It's one of the great modern hymns, I think. But it's interesting how it combines both. It just, it soars melodically and draws everyone up. But at the same time, it's doing it. And then it just cuts the legs out of everything in the last line. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. It makes you think, that's where the hope comes from. It isn't that I feel these things. It's that he's done. And it's such a great example of how to combine those things together in, in songwriting, as indeed I think was Josh's outstanding song he taught us last night, which is just a beautiful example of that phenomenon. And I fancy it's actually, it's not that the, you know, it's not you have to pull this way for, you know, excitement and then pull this way for depth, but with a bit of gloom thrown in. That's not how it works. It's actually the more of the depth you've got, the higher you can go. It's like a trampoline. You know, the, you want to, they always say this, you're teaching people to trampoline. You say, don't worry about how high you're reaching. Worry about how low you're going into the springs because that's where the height comes from. And that happens all the time. So in prayer, learned prayer helps spontaneous ones. Because when people have learned how to pray with the, the Psalter, or they've learned how to pray with the Lord's Prayer, or just biblical prayer, they've, they've got Pauline prayers in their soul. I could just throw out a plug for D.A. Carson's book, uh, A Call to Spiritual Reformation, his book on Paul and his prayers. So help me, just seeing what Paul prays for it's a lot of them in passages you just don't notice, just two verses of prayer in Thessalonians. That's so powerful. But as people learn learned prayers, their spontaneous prayers can be sustained because they've learned how to do it and forms of words come off their tongue now. They, they feel like, I can pray for longer. I can pray with more richness and actually feel less silly about it because instead of going, yeah, Lord, I just pray you bless me, they've actually got loads and loads of resources from the forms of words they've learned that sustain the heights, if you see. So as they go down into the set prayers, they're able to go up higher in the spontaneous ones. They're not in conflict with each other. I think the same thing happens for 
with the sacraments, the sort of exuberance of what baptism is. And the meaning of the depth and the healing power even of communion, that you're inviting people to communion. And it's often pictured almost like a medicine in the New Testament. It's like it's a place where people come and receive healing. And it's a spiritual healing, obviously, but physical healing too. It's the, the coupling together of sacraments and spiritual power. You find the same with the songs, don't you? The, the, the great hymns provide you with the roots you need to, to just to fly sometimes. And sometimes a, you know, a, a really sort of, again, I like some big anthemic epic songs, but often you have too many of them in a row. They just, they, they feel sugary again. You often need something just to ground it with enough truth. But if you only have these ones, you feel like these truths are so mighty. I don't know why we're not sounding more cheerful that they are true. And it's like when you bring both together, they reinforce each other. I think the same is true of so many things in the Christian life. Um, and I find that, again, with and prophecy, actually, which uh, is obviously a very charismatic gift, but it's amazing how it can reinforce people's sense of the fear of God. And that, like, that's what happened to me. If I'm in a meeting, and I remember thinking this, in that meeting I mentioned where Julian's prophesying and brings this word about manuscripts, I think, wow, that is lucky that the in- email in my inbox was about wanting to write a book. But what if it had been an email from a subscription service I shouldn't have? God knows what's in my inbox. Like, it, it, it's good. I mean, I, I didn't have emails like that at the time, and I still, still don't. But, but the point is, it could have been anything else. It could have been, what if it was an email from someone I shouldn't have been talking to this way at all? God knows that as well. Like, there is sometimes that, whoa, God is here. That's frightening. Um, this is a, a great example from Charles Spurgeon. I, I love this story because most people are prepared to concede. Most evangelicals are prepared to concede that Spurgeon's a goodie. Um, but he's not a loony charismatic at all. He is a bearded Victorian preacher. But I love this story he tells in his autobiography of prophecy. He doesn't call it prophecy, but his allusions make it clear he thinks that's what it is. By God's grace, I've become a new creature in Christ Jesus, says one of his parishioners. Shall I tell you how it happened? I went to the music hall and I took my seat in the middle of the place. Mr. Spurgeon looked at me as if he knew me. And in his sermon, he pointed to me And he told the congregation that I was a shoemaker and that I kept my shop open on Sundays. And I did so. I shouldn't have minded that, but he also said that I took ninepence the Sunday before and that there was fourpence profit out of it. I did take ninepence that day. And fourpence was just the profit, but how he should know that, I couldn't tell. Then it struck me that it was God who had spoken to my soul through him, so I shut up my shop the next Sunday. At first I was afraid to go again to hear him, lest he should tell the people more about me. But afterwards I went and the Lord met with me and saved my soul. Now, actually, the story is told in more detail than that. I've, there's a few uh, ellipses in there because the Spurgeon's got this wonderful thing. This man's soul is sold for fourpence. Like the entire church is like prophetic shaming. It's just amazing. <laughs> but the power of that kind of ministry in someone who's known for being such a word man and, and who himself says some very strong things about loony fringe charismatics in his day, or what we would call loony fringe. See, Spurgeon is not a flake. I think if you read him, you know, he is the most, the most Christ-centered gospel preacher of, in, some would say, of, of Christian history, but certainly of the last couple of hundred years, I think. But he's there, he's just operating in whatever you call it in your church, the word of knowledge, just prophecy. He's cutting to the heart. And that kind of thing reinforces a reverence and an awe, which is exactly what those of us who lean into Eucharist, Eucharistic gifts want to do. I've, there's more I could say, but just I want to conclude with this. The first sign Jesus ever did, John's Gospel tells us, was to turn water into wine. And it sounds like an odd sign. You think, why not raise the dead? Why not? This is the sign he did 
and manifested his glory. Why that? And why not casting out a demon, healing a blind person? But the symbolism is very powerful because water in Scripture is the washing away of the old. It's the flood judgment. It's the Red Sea that takes the enemies of God out to sea. And, of course, in baptism. And then wine symbolizes the peace and the joy and the life and the celebration of the world to come. The prophets always talk about the wine that will flow over the hills when the new creation comes. The old world was judged. It was covered in water. The new world will come. It will be covered in wine. And that symbolism runs through the gifts given to the church. Obviously, water that buries our our old life, wine, which is a foretaste of the wedding banquet to come. But we also find those two images of water and wine coming together in the coming of the Holy Spirit. That The Holy Spirit descends and drenches us, baptizo. We are plunged, immersed, pickled into the water of the Holy Spirit. And yet at the same time, what people say when that happens is, these people are filled with wine. Or what they warn people is, don't get drunk with wine. Be filled with the Spirit's. There is something, I think, eucharismatic about even the imagery of water and wine and the first sign that Jesus does. And what it shows me is that God has given abundant gifts to his church to wash away the old and to ring in the new. He's given us sacramental gifts and charismatic ones. So let's be people who celebrate both. Can I pray?